You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Vitamins, supplements, diet trends. The news seems to change every week about what we should be doing or not doing to stay healthy. One week it's lots of vitamin C, then it's lots of vitamin D, and then it's nope, don't take any vitamins at all. Or it's the plethora of diets for anyone trying to lose weight. The Atkins diet, the zone diet, the high protein diet, diets for your blood type, your horoscope sign. Okay, not really your horoscope sign. Actually, there are diets for your horoscope sign. Really? So, yeah. And so how do we make sense of it all? Well, we'll hear from a doctor later in the show, also Hollywood reality check. And meet the man who kicked off the health craze in America at the turn of the last century. It's been in high gear ever since. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone, our monthly look at critical thinking. Skeptic Phil Plate is with us every month to present lapses in critical thinking. And this week, he's concerned about the current anti-vaccine movement. Some parents, fearing that the shots will give their kids autism, have refused to have their children vaccinated. Yet studies have shown no link between vaccines and autism. And Phil writes about this on his skepticism blog at Discover Magazine. Yet the controversy persists, doesn't it, Phil? Yeah, this controversy, if you could see me, you'd see me making little air quotes. We know that vaccines do not cause autism. There have been studies done, and it shows that autism is unrelated to vaccines. The problem here is that when a child gets a vaccine and a child typically develops symptoms of autism, these happen around the same time in a child's life. And it's very easy to put these two things together and say one causes the other, that vaccines cause autism. But in fact, that's not the case. They just both happen around the same time. But I think that there was actually a federal court ruling in February that absolved any connection between these vaccines and autism in this country. And and yet, People still believe it. It's an emotional issue for parents, after all, I suppose. And they just want to think that somebody else or something else that they can point to is responsible for the fact that their child has autism, I I would think. I think you're probably right. The the court cases that came up earlier in the year were actually supposed to be the best cases. The, the Basically, the, the people who had a grievance against vaccines were said, collect your data, put it all together, show us the best cases you have. And all three of them completely fell apart under a court of law. And in the meantime, caught in the middle of all this are these parents whose, whose kids are suffering for whatever reasons, but it's not through vaccinations. And the problem here is that with this anti-vaccination movement becoming very strong and very loud, parents are becoming scared about vaccinating their children, and that is having physical and very serious ramifications. If you have enough people in in a population who are vaccinated against a particular disease, say measles, then you have enough people who are carrying the antibodies that the measles cannot live inside of them. With enough people like that, you need about 95% of the population to be inoculated against it. The disease has no place to live. And the 5% or so of people who are not vaccinated are immune. It's herd immunity. Well, the problem is when those numbers drop below 90%, then the measles and rubella and mumps and all these other terrible diseases, they have a place to live and they can infect people who are not inoculated. And those people might include folks who are allergic to vaccinations, people who have immune disorders and cannot get vaccinations, and really, really sadly, uh, very, very young infants who are too young to be vaccinated yet. And this is so hard to talk about. But there are parents in Australia uh, who found this out firsthand when their daughter, who was four weeks old, died of whooping cough. 
And she died of whooping cough because in that area in Australia, vaccination rates are very low. And the reason they are very low is because there is such a loud anti-vaccination group down there in Australia, scaring parents into not vaccinating their kids. It sounds as if this anti-vax sentiment has gone even beyond autism. There was a news story recently in which a poll was made asking, look, it's likely that a swine flu vaccine will be made available later this year. And 30 percent of the respondents said, well, they would not take that vaccine. They would not have that vaccine administered to themselves. Uh, same phenomenon? That's possible. You know, I don't know how many people actually take the flu vaccination every year. And that's something that, that does come up. I think some people are scared. They don't understand how vaccines work. They don't understand that no medical procedure is without risk. But you have to think about what that risk is. The risk from a vaccination is incredibly small. That there, there are very few and very minor effects. They only happen to a tiny, tiny fraction of the population. But the vaccination can prevent a huge fraction of the population from getting this disease, which can have far worse problems. You know, getting measles doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal. We've all heard of the measles. But in fact, when you read about what can happen to it, there's all sorts of damage, including brain damage that can happen and death for infants with a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of any sort of problems happening in the population. So it, it makes good statistical, good mathematical sense to get vaccinated. But there was a case in 1976 when there was a swine flu vaccine made available and some people actually got sick from the vaccine. There's a symptom called uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome and it's uh, when your immune system attacks your nervous system. And there were some cases of this that were, that were reported after a swine flu vaccine was, was given to the general public. What you have to understand is that first of all, most people, or at least half the people that, that had, these, uh, had these problems, fully recovered. And the number of people who got it, it's just an incredibly small fraction of the tens of millions of people who got the vaccine. Nothing in life is entirely safe. It's all a matter of statistical odds. You are probably in far more danger, probably, I mean, my gosh, you are certainly in far more danger hopping in your car and driving to the doctor's office to get a shot than you are from the shot itself. And yet we get up and drive to the store when we run out of milk. You know, we, we're not good at processing that sort of math. People, and I include myself in this, we don't think about those kind of statistics. Yeah, this sounds like uh, I'm not going to wear my seatbelt because a few people have, you know, have suffered stomach injury by wearing seatbelts. That's kind of that's thing. right. When tens of thousands of people's lives are saved every year from wearing seatbelts. Finally, Phil, if they do come out with a swine flu vaccine this year, are you going to get a shot? If I get a shot to take my shot, I will definitely take that shot and get my shot. I've had all of my vaccines. My daughter has had her vaccinations. People always ask me, are you willing to put yourself through this? You know, the anti-vaxxers who comment on my blog when I mention this. And I say, of course, of course. Phil Plate, thank you so much for injecting a bit of uh, clear-headed thinking into this discussion of vaccines. Thank you, Seth. Phil Plate is the keeper of the skeptic website at Discover Magazine called badastronomy.com. America is supposedly a nation of health nuts, yet some of us would rather slouch on the couch with a bag of chips than swim at the gym in a Speedo, or even without a Speedo. And as a result, an estimated two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. But we're still a fitness-fascinated nation with eclectic tastes. For those who exercise, there are a wide variety of activities to choose from. If you remember in the 80s, it was jogging and aerobics. Now it's water aerobics, hip-hop aerobics, cycling, yoga, Pilates, Tai Chi, treadmills. And at least one segment of the health nut crowd is growing. Baby boomers. According to a CNN poll, almost 40% of health club members are age 55 and older. Plus, health and nutrition ideas abound. There's a flood of magazines devoted to the subject and nearly as many diets, some sensible, some senseless, that we adopt in our efforts to lose weight. We're a nation preoccupied by what's good for us, whether or not we follow the advice. We didn't used to be so distracted. At the turn of the 20th century, that is from the 19th to the 20th, we were a meat and potatoes kind of folk and exercise was something that could hurt you. So how did we go from that to Muscle Beach, Jane Fonda leg kicks, protein shakes, and tofu? Well, according to author Mark Adams, it began in the 1870s with an Ozarks orphan who was sick with tuberculosis at age eight. 
But Bernard McFadden was no ordinary boy. He supposedly cured himself of TB and went on to get his strength back and, between the world wars, helped the country find its own strength and define its pec and glute muscles along the way. He was the founder of modern bodybuilding. In addition, as an early vegetarian, McFadden offered the nation an alternative menu. And his legacy lives on in today's health craze, writes Adams in Mr. America, How Muscular Millionaire Bernard McFadden Transformed the Nation Through Sex, Salad, and the Ultimate Starvation Diet. But as the title suggests, McFadden was also a man of extremes, and the advice he gave the public was not scientifically proven. Some of it has stayed with us, while some, like... His denial of germ theory has been relegated to the status of historical curiosity. Yet Mark Adams says McFadden's health philosophy was pithy and surprisingly modern-sounding. It boils down to eat less, eat healthy, and exercise as much as you possibly can. And, and was he healthy for most of his life? Oh, he was extremely healthy. He was a very vigorous man, well into his 70s. Um, he died at age 87 because he tried to fast his way out of jaundice, which wasn't a very good idea. And fasting was one of his core principles, which we'll come to. Now, but he was also the founder of modern bodybuilding, and this is where he may have gotten his, his physique, his, Absolutely. Perfect, his perfect physique. How did he get into bodybuilding and end up with this motto, weakness is a crime? Well, uh, like many bodybuilders, he was a classic narcissist, and he loved to look at himself while flexing. He found a man named Eugen Sandow at the Columbia Exposition in Chicago in 1893, who was one of the most famous athletes of the late Victorian age. He was a Prussian strongman who could do things like lift two horses over his head. Um, <laughs> and he was absolutely entranced by, by Sandow. He stole most of Sandow's posing tricks went to New York City and eventually held what was America's first bodybuilding show in 1903 at Madison Square Garden. Now, when you say tricks, do you mean some of this was smoke and mirrors? Well, some of it was powder in that he, the, these guys back in that age would take powdered chalk and do their bodies up and then stand before a black cabinet, which made them look you know, twice their normal size. He also had particular ideas about health and, and nutrition and so forth, what mm -hmm. went into his body. And he claims to have cured himself of TB yeah. as a teenager by himself. How did he do this? Basically by radically reducing the amount of food he ate. He was getting by on a few hundred calories a day, all of it plant-based, and exercising constantly. And he was cured of TB? According to him, he was cured of TB. Now, have you run this by any doctors or who can tell you whether or not this is an effective cure for TB to stop eating and, and do the things that he did? <laughs> well, I mean, fasting is still, you know, far off, you know, in outer space as far as regular medical science is concerned in terms of treating disease. That said, there have been some cases in recent years where, you know, studies have been done where they found out, you know, hey, fasting is useful in treating arthritis, Parkinson's, Huntington's disease. So I, you know, I don't think anyone's ever actually sat down and, and looked at the, the numbers on TB patients and seen whether fasting and fresh air and lots of exercise will cure you. Now, when we talk about fasting, I mean, I can go maybe a whole morning without eating, but that's not <laughs> what we're talking about, is it? No, 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 no. McFadden believed that fasting was stopping all intake of food, taking only water, and not eating again until you felt hunger in the back of your throat like a thirst. And that could be three days, it could be five days, it could be a week, it could be two weeks. And yet he had enough energy to bodybuild? Yeah, he never ate on Mondays. Um, and this is a man who would often walk the 20 miles to his office in the morning. This was another one of his core principles, was walking. I mean, yep. a, a lot of walking, 25 miles a day? Yeah, yeah, the perfect exercise as far as he was concerned. He said, here's, here's your exercise regimen if you don't exercise. Start walking, walk as far as you can until you have to stop, take a rest, and then walk some more. <laughs> and just repeat until you're in good shape. Tell me about Bernard McFadden, his origins, where, where he came from. Where did he grow up? I had an absolutely dreadful childhood. He grew up in the Ozarks of Missouri. His father was an alcoholic who died of the DTs when McFadden was about four. His mother had tuberculosis, um, sent him off to what I guess you could call a boarding school, but they didn't actually teach him anything there. It was just a place to keep him. And then when he sort of failed out after a year, she sent him off in essentially indentured servitude to a local farmer 
and then ended up in St. Louis, and that's where he realized that he had tuberculosis. So, I mean, the first 12 years of his life were absolutely Dickensian, and it's only once he gets to St. Louis that he starts working for himself and discovering some of these uh, therapies that later, you know, became the bedrock of his philosophy. And is there a connection, would you say? Because one wants to know where he got all of his ideas, and and, and you wonder if, because of his, his very disturbing childhood, if this was the ultimate in self-reliance and saying, you don't need anyone else, you only need yourself. Oh, absolutely. He, you know, he believed that every man and every woman, he was a big innovator in uh, women's athletics, um, should be able to take control of their own destiny. And he believed that health was, you know, the number one priority in being able to do that. How did he get his message out? He started America's first, I believe, health magazine, Physical yeah. Culture. Was that his chief means of disseminating these ideas? It was. Physical Culture was not the first health magazine, but the first health magazine for a mass audience. It was extremely successful, far more successful than I ever would have guessed before I started looking into this. Sold, I think, 40 or 50 million copies between the two world wars. And this is a magazine that 100 years ago was talking about raw food, calorie restriction, weightlifting, aerobic exercise. Um, it ran its first article on yoga with how-to illustrations in 1931. It was a magazine that was at least 50, if not 75 or 100 years out of its time. These were radical ideas. Oh, crazy ideas. And yet it found a rather large audience. Well, those are two different categories, though, radical and crazy. Mm, yeah. I mean, it, you could say it was crazy depending on, on your point of view. You know, if you're a believer that medical science can cure everything and that you don't have to take control of your life in terms of diet and exercise to be healthier, then they're crazy. But if you are someone who says, I don't believe in medicine, you know, I just believe in what nature has provided us with, then they're radical and brilliant. And unfortunately, most of our lives <laughs> exist between those two poles. Did he not believe in medicine? Did he not believe no. in science? No, he, he believed in scientific efficiency. He believed in mechanical science. He was an early adopter of technologies. He bought an airplane in the 1920s, that sort of thing. But when it came to medical science, he refused to buy into the germ theory. And that's, that's really what brought about his end. You know, in the 20s and 30s, McFadden had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who followed him diligently. And one of his core ideas was that germs would have no ill effect on a healthy body. A healthy body meaning one in which its owner is not eating a lot, is getting a lot of exercise, and doesn't put any sort of pollutants, including medicines, into that sacred vessel. Now, now this magazine, Physical Culture, he also had a certain style in which he delivered his his ideas. Bold, oh, yes. Bold print, lots of exclamation points. He was irrepressible. Absolutely. Reading an editor's column in Physical Culture was a bit like being shouted at by a gym teacher. <laughs> now, is it true that he discovered Charles Atlas? He did discover Charles Atlas. The bodybuilding shows that he started around 1903 grew and grew and grew every year. By 1920, 1921, he was running something called the World's Most Perfect Man competition at Madison Square Garden. And in 1920, a young Sicilian immigrant named Angelo Siciliano came in and uh, blew everybody away. He accepted his $1,000 check from McFadden, came back the next year, won $1,000 again, and then McFadden canceled all future competitions because he said, this kid Siciliano is going to win every year. Of course, by that time, he'd become Charles Atlas. Now, he wasn't entirely alone in, in his ideas, w whether they be radical or crazy, mm -hmm. as we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. John Harvey Kellogg was around at the at the yes. time. He, he founded the cereal company, and he also promoted a rigorous diet and suggested people should stop eating animal foods yes. and also chew their food a lot, like McFadden did. He said, yep. you have to chew your food a lot. Absolutely. Um, were, were Kellogg and McFadden of the same mind? Oh, yeah. I would say 70 or 80 percent of what Kellogg preached, McFadden preached as well. And they had health homes right across from each other in Battle Creek, Michigan, which was sort of like the Sedona, Arizona of its day. It's where people went to, to get healthy and, and, you know, clean out their systems and such. The big difference between Kellogg and McFadden, and they really are the, the two biggest names in, in alternative health in the first half of the 20th century, was that Kellogg was a surgeon. And McFadden absolutely abhorred surgery in all of its forms.
So if you cut yourself open, are you allowed to stitch yourself back up, according to McFadden? Or? <laughs> yeah, you could, you could go to the hospital for treatment of things like broken bones. However, his daughter came to, down with appendicitis in the 1940s, and he told her to uh, go on a grapefruit juice fast. And what happened to her? She wisely turned to her mother, who said, why don't you go see a surgeon instead? Hold that pose right there and strengthen those muscles until we're back with more about America's first fitness guru. You're listening to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone?, our monthly look at critical thinking. We continue our interview with Mark Adams about Bernard McFadden, America's first health guru. Now, Bernard McFadden appeared at the scene around the turn of the century when America was more of a meat-and-potatoes kind of country rather than tofu and arugula, and yet people took to him. How do you explain that? I just think that there was an untapped market for this sort of thing. Remember, this was this is the time when America was moving from a rural agrarian society to an urban society with, you know, desk-bound clerks, coal-fired furnaces, you know, so people were still sort of, you know, getting their bearings in this this urban society and, you know, coming down with maladies that didn't exist 50 years earlier. So I think a lot of people were looking around for guidance into how to take control of their health. And McFadden was one of the few voices out there saying, you know, look, here's what you got to do. And he actually changed America's habits? He changed the habits of a good chunk of America. You know, the vast majority of people would rather drive than walk. You know, they'd rather take a pill than starve themselves of most of their calories. So, you know, there to say that there was a large market for his beliefs is to say that, you know, there were probably a few million people who believed in him uh, religiously. Now, he also advocated some wacky advice. Oh, I yes. suppose that's the best, the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. What did he suggest that men who are distressed about going bald do? I guess he was a big believer in yanking the hair uh, by the roots vigorously for several minutes a day to get the blood flowing into the follicles. He swore that his hair had begun falling out when he was about 20 and that he did this every morning for the rest of his life. And all I can say is he died with a full head of hair. Any idea where he got this idea about... <laughs> I think this may have been one of his own inventions. He had another crusade. He took on the American Medical Association in the 1920s yes. um, in their attempts to vaccinate people on the north side of Chicago. Yep. Why was he so upset with them? Because he didn't really believe in germs. He, he believed that they existed, but in his thinking, germs could do no harm in a healthy body. A healthy body being a body in which the person exercises, eats natural foods, and doesn't eat too much, and probably most of all, um, doesn't take any sort of medicine because he saw medicine as, as poison. So when the AMA started pushing vaccination in the 1920s, he saw that as a major threat to his philosophy. So do you think he turned people away from vaccinations in the 1920s? I think he turned a lot of people against vaccination. He didn't vaccinate his own children. You know, his, his own children over in New Jersey couldn't go to the public schools because they hadn't been vaccinated. I'm speaking with Mark Adams. He's a writer and editor, and he's the author of Mr. America, How Muscular Millionaire Bernard McFadden Transformed the Nation Through Sex, Salad, and the Ultimate Starvation Diet. Well, Mark, sex, he transformed the nation through sex. How did he do that? He did, because when Physical Culture Magazine started, basically most of America had venereal disease, it seems like. Only when World War I rolled around and the Army started doing physicals on soldiers did they realize that you know, 20 to 30 percent of the men they were seeing had late-stage syphilis or gonorrhea. McFadden started writing about this 20 years before that and actually was sentenced to two years hard labor in a federal penitentiary for running a, a serial fiction story about a young man who had given VD to another young woman. So at least in that sense, he, he really got the ball rolling on 
bringing sex out into the open. When you say he brought it into the open, was mm-hmm. he advocating that people should do more of it, which of course would spread more disease or have no, he, safe sex or what was it? Well, he was certainly uh, a fan of sex, but what he was a fan of was letting young people know about sex earlier. You know, this is just after the Victorian era had ended and sex was still a topic that was not much discussed. You know, certainly young women were not learning a lot about sex before their marriage night. And what was happening was a lot of these guys were bringing syphilis or gonorrhea into a marriage, infecting the wife, the children would be, would be born with one disease or the other. You know, it would have a snowball effect. What he was saying was, look, let's just bring this out into the open and admit that it exists and that a significant percentage of the population has it, and then we can start treating it from there. Of course, his treatment would have involved not eating and (laughs) exercising a lot and things like that. And I have to guess that that's probably not the best way to attack syphilis. Now, Bernard McFadden died in 1955. Yes. Since then, which of his ideas have proven to be smart and effective and actually supported by science? And and which of them have been discredited? Well, I think the, the ones that have, you know, really stuck with us are, you know, exercise daily, eat a mostly plant-based diet, make sure to get your heart rate up, you know, things like that. They're pretty basic health ideas at this point. Well, he also suggested stay away from white bread. Well, yeah, stay away from well, stay away from all white foods, you know, which is the, the bulk of the South Beach diet, which was written by a cardiologist. Stay away from white rice, stay away from white bread, stay away from refined sugar. You know, it was McFadden who got white bread enriched, as we now know it, back in like 1940, because apparently Hitler had cut off Europe's riboflavin at that time. So he used this as a as a wedge to uh, to get America's bakers to put vitamin B1 back into the uh, the white bread as a patriotic duty. As a patriotic duty, exactly. You know, so everything we know is is a healthy lifestyle these days. McFadden, if if not the major influence, was a major influence on all that. At the same time, you know, his bedrock belief that germs couldn't do harm to a healthy body, you know, that one hasn't aged so well. His his idea that you could cure cancer with an all-grape diet, that's probably another one that, that's not going to make a comeback anytime soon. So in some ways he made, he cleared the way for health aficionados or health nuts. We yep. have a few of those here in California. Oh, yes. Um, can you also say that he made the country safe for quacks? No, because quacks are, are, you know, a great American tradition. Quacks go all the way back to the Revolutionary War and, and beyond. I think he made America safe for a certain kind of lifestyle that really does uh, get associated mostly with California. Yet there's a group, maybe you've heard of them, of, they call themselves breatharians. I believe that's how they pronounce it, breatharians. <laughs> and they believe you can just live on light and yeah. you don't need any food or any water. Now, this is dubious advice. Would you have breatharians if we didn't have Bernard McFadden? You know, I, I couldn't say. People have been tossing around crazy ideas since, you know, God knows when. But, uh, you know, that's one that I think even McFadden would have had trouble getting behind. So what do you see as his legacy? How do we see it around us today? I think his legacy is, you know... Right now, it's it's absolutely up to the minute. You know, we've got President Obama's health secretary talking about shifting the burden of health care from treatment to wellness. That's a very McFadden idea. You know, he was probably at the peak of his influence in 1933 when FDR took office, a moment at which, by the way, Eleanor Roosevelt was working for McFadden. And it's really a mirror of what I see today with the talk about healthcare and saying the only way to save money is to take charge of your own health. One of the things he advocated was to eat mostly plants. That's that's yes. one one third of the advice put out by writer Michael Pollan, which is <sighs> yeah. food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah, exactly. When I saw that on the cover of Michael Pollan's book, I was like, oh my God, that's pure McFadden. It's actually, it's pure J.I. Rodale who you know, coined the term organic, who started the magazine Prevention, which is you know, one of the great influences on, on wellness and holistic thinking. And Rodale basically said, I patterned my entire career on Bernard McFadden. I owe him everything.
You have tried some of McFadden's ideas along the way in, in varying degrees of severity. Yes. Um, but you did embark on the grand PC that would be a physical culture finale. Yes. Now, when you started this, this was going to be pretty rigorous. Uh, you were not in good shape, it sounds nope. like. Um, I was in horrible shape. Overweight, intestinal trouble, <laughs> respiratory trouble. Yeah, I was basically a, a wreck, a, a 39 or 40-year-old wreck, and I had, a, I think, a 40-inch waist. I could you know, barely walk up a flight of stairs. I had this stomach bug and this lung bug that had been bothering me. I wasn't sleeping well. So what I sat down to do was draw up a plan based on McFadden's theories in which I could turn my health around quickly, six, eight weeks, which McFadden believed you could do. You could you could change your life almost overnight if you were willing to make radical changes. Well, sure. If you stop eating, you'll see the results in two weeks. <laughs> you, you know, you'd be amazed how the pounds melt off when you stop eating. So what I did was I tried to not eat for a week. I got about five days in on just water and a little bit of salt. I can think of a lot better ways to spend five days than to sit around the house not eating. But once I went back on food, I did notice that the stomach bug had gone away, the chest infection had gone away, and I had extraordinary levels of energy. I was able to exercise much more than I had been able to in the past. So I was sort of heartened by that. So you introduced some food at some point. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm not a breatharian. I can't, you know, I can't make it more than a few days without food. Actually, they can't either. But... <laughs> I guess it's an ideal, something to shoot for. <laughs> did you stay? Did you stick with it, or which, which parts of Bernard McFadden's regimen have you stuck with? Well, I, you know, I've adopted a lot of his ideas in my life. I chew my food twenty or thirty times now before swallowing, and find that I have to eat a lot less food. I really have started adding a lot of raw food and you know fruits and vegetables to my diet, where I wasn't eating that many of them before. I've taken on walking as a serious exercise. You know, as, as I put it in the book, you know, I always thought walking was an exercise for old people in laxative commercials who are strolling along the beach in, in matching tracksuits. But if you get the pace up to about four miles an hour, as McFadden suggests, it's a really serious workout. Now, as we do this interview, you have a bit of a fever. You have the flu. I do. I do. I, I How do you touch. account for having the flu? Well, because I've I've uh, forsaken all of the master's great ideas. I've, I've gone back to drinking alcohol. I've gone back to eating fried food. And, and not on a regular basis, but some of the time. So he would say that I have poisoned my system and made myself susceptible to germs. Well, Mark, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. Mark Adams is a writer and editor, and he's the author of Mr. America, How Muscular Millionaire Bernard McFadden Transformed the Nation Through Sex, Salad, and the Ultimate Starvation Diet. And now to the land of the starvation diet. Hooray for Hollywood. That's screwy ballyhooey Hollywood. We're in New York. All right, everybody. This is a reality check. Put your credulity on the table. When it comes to a reality check, we let our Hollywood skeptic conduct the exam, but this week he's practicing with a dubious license. It's the Hollywood reality check. Check this out. I'm in my car, it's a warm day, and I've got a gallon of blood and a box of human entrails on the seat next to me. Oops, there's a cop. Better cover the guts. I'm on my way back to the Dapper Cadaver, a special effects store about 20 minutes north of Hollywood. Okay, the blood and guts are fake, but I'm not making a horror film. I just used them in a lecture my skeptics group gave called Feng Shui for Home Practitioners. The lecture was for registered nurses in California. The blood and guts came at the end of the show. They weren't really the main attraction. But we wanted to see how far we could push things. See, registered nurses in California have to take continuing education classes to keep their licenses. But four years ago, our independent investigations group found out that registered nurses here were taking a certified continuing education course on therapeutic touch. Some people believe that therapeutic touch is a healing technique where the hands manipulate an energy field over the patient, but there's no touching involved, and this alleged energy field is not something the world of science knows about. And we were shocked that this course was one of the approved options for nurses in California. 
We thought the Board of Nursing would want to know that this bogus technique is being taught to professional nurses. Wrong. I spoke at a number of nursing board meetings all over California, and our group assembled and distributed well-documented arguments against therapeutic touch to the individual members of the nursing board. For three years, their response was to ignore us, sandbag us, and to fight to keep the therapeutic touch class. So we applied for our own continuing education provider's license to see if the board would let us teach something as wacky as therapeutic touch, like feng shui for home practitioners, for instance. Feng shui is an ancient Chinese practice which seeks to harmonize the flow of life energy, or qi, through the house. Science doesn't recognize the qi, by the way. In our application, we said we'd also go over techniques using snake oil, anthropomancy, and canopiary flexibility. Anthropomancy is divining the future using human entrails. That's why I got the blood and guts from the prop house. Canopiary flexibility doesn't mean anything. We made up the word canopiary. We submitted our application for feng shui for home practitioners to the Board of Nursing with all that mumbo jumbo on it in the summer of 2008 and were actually granted a certificate to be a continuing education provider that August. So we settled in to teach our feng shui, anthropomancy, and canopiary flexibility class. But get this, a few days before I got to toss the bucket of entrails onto the floor and divine the future in front of our first class, the board rescinded our certificate. We had already been an approved continuing education provider for seven months, but they took our certificate away within days after we sent out press releases to the media about how our bizarre application had been approved. Okay, the Board of Registered Nursing was right to revoke our wacky class, but Therapeutic Touch is also wacky and remains certified. We just want to see all the rubbish cleaned out of nursing education. Which reminds me, I gotta clean this bucket of fake guts and get them back to the prop house before they close. Oh, look at this traffic. Jim Underdown is the executive director of the Center for Inquiry West, Los Angeles. Well, we can't blame the public for being drawn into classes on touch therapy, although the one about divining the future from animal entrails is a little suspicious. Not to mention out of date by about 2,000 years. The Romans made a practice of it. They called it heruspicy back in the days of empire. You're listening to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? But don't take our word for it. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? Our monthly look at critical thinking. Tune in tonight on many of these same stations. A new acne treatment gets the believer into hot water on Leave It to Believer. Mom, Mom, look what Larry gave me. Slow down, believer. Wipe your feet. It's a root from the ground. Larry says it'll help my acne. He says my face looks like a pepperoni pizza with extra pepperoni. Looks like Larry gave you a stick, dear. No, Mom. All the kids say it has medicinal properties. Can I try it on my acne, Mom, please? Can I, huh? I don't know, believer. Later that evening... Mom, I don't feel so well. Oh, believer, you have a fever. Your ears are bright red. Your skin is corrugated like a Quonset hut, and is that a third arm growing from your chest? I told you, Mom, I don't feel so good. Well, believer, I don't feel so well. Find out what happens when the believer tangles with non-government-approved medical therapies on Leave It to Believer. I'm home! That's your father, Believer. Wait until I tell him what you've done. Aw, gee, Mom, do you have to? Maybe he won't notice. 
there's a lot of health advice out there. A fire hose of advice, really, especially when it comes to nutrition and medicine and supplements. There seems to be a new idea just about every month, maybe every week. Take more vitamin C. No, take less vitamin C, but double up on D. Uh, these foods help you lose weight, but those foods don't. Some of the reports are sound, some are nonsensical, and some advice is even risky. So how is the public to sort it out? Stephen Novella writes about all these issues and more on his skeptic blog, Neurologica. A clinical neurologist at the Yale University School of Medicine, he says that when it comes to health and nutrition, it's no wonder the collective public head is spinning. The mainstream media generally responds to the latest press release of the latest study, and it does not often put it into any kind of proper context. So it may seem to the public that the scientists are telling us to do one thing one day and something completely opposite the next day. But actually, in the background, uh, the science is, is going along very carefully, asking questions. And so the answers do slowly change over time as we, as we ask questions and gather more evidence. So in order to avoid some of the confusion from getting blown one way and the other by these daily press releases, is to go to authoritative sources of information that will put this all into some kind of a scientific context. But Steve, I mean, it, it's nice to say that they should go to, if you will, more authoritative sources of information, but maybe that's just whistling in the dark. I mean, they're, they're going to perhaps just listen to the last thing they've heard, or maybe they'll go to their physician. But I notice that my physician will put me on one kind of vitamin for two years and then say, you can stop taking that now because some new study suggests, well, it isn't actually efficacious and it might actually be harmful. Well, there is a lot of evidence about specific vitamins for specific indications, and that's generally how you know, the medical community will address it. Should you know, pregnant women or women trying to get pregnant take folic acid to prevent spinal cord disorders? Yes, the evidence supports that specific use of that specific vitamin. Great. But, and sometimes the recommendations change. You know, it, it's come to light recently that probably Americans have less vitamin D than we should have. So there are recommendations to increase our either exposure to sunlight, although there's downsides to that as well in terms of you know, skin cancer and such, or should take more supplements or perhaps just drink more food fortified with vitamin D. But then again, there's lots of sub-questions that need to be explored, and I wouldn't be surprised if those get revised or even overturned as we understand more about what vitamin D is doing in the body. But I think what the nutritionists and scientists and, and medical experts agree on is that the best approach is just to have a healthy, varied diet with lots of fruits and vegetables. If you do that, you're probably covered. Otherwise, there are medical situations in which you should take specific supplements, and that you can get advice on that from your physician. Well, since you speak about diets, I mean, that, that's something where, you know, it seems every three months there's a new book on the shelves with a new fad diet, right? I mean, there's, there's a, the, the Atkins diet and the three-day diet and the all-you-can-eat diet and the Japanese diet. And, I mean, so right. All these diet plans, all these diet books, and people coming on and say you can lose 20 pounds this weekend and so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, clearly somebody's making a lot of money here, which is, you know, okay. But, you know, what's a overweight person to do? Well, you know, most people don't like the answer that I give and I think that science gives. And the answer is eat less and move more. You need to exercise more and you need to consume fewer calories. And the evidence is overwhelming that that is what works. Weight loss diets generally do not work meaning that there is no specific type of food or balance of foods or kinds of foods that you eat that make you lose weight or even make it easier for you to lose weight and keep it off in the long term. Almost any diet that you go on, most people will lose weight in the short term. And it's been clearly shown, in my opinion, that that happens because you eat fewer calories, period. But 95% of people who lose weight by changing their diet gain it back over a year or two years. Very few people actually keep the weight off long term. Therefore, it seems that the entire strategy of dieting is not a good strategy for, for weight loss. What you need to do is, is make a permanent change to your habits and, and adopt healthier habits. There was a case here involving what's called a Chinese slimming capsule that I think you wrote about. It right. seems to be very popular. Well, what are they professing to do and, and what's wrong with them? Many of the herbal remedies that are purported to help with weight loss, first it's important for everyone to know that these are not regulated by the FDA. 
the, Federal, the Food and Drug Administration, so that these companies can make these claims, as long as they are careful about how they word them, they could make these claims without any scientific evidence at all. So that really opened the floodgates to all kinds of snake oil in the weight loss industry. What they often do is they will include some random assortment of herbs and vitamins, you know, so-called supplements in their formula, but they almost always include something which is a stimulant. It could be caffeine. It could be a caffeine derivative. So even if you read the label, unless you're a chemist, you may not recognize that there's some caffeine derivative in there, or it could be some other stimulant. And what stimulants do is short-term, they increase your metabolism. So yeah, you may feel like, hey, I have more energy with this, and I burn off more calories, and I lose some weight. But again, that's not a healthy strategy long-term. It's very unhealthy to be chronically on stimulants. And there's also a rebound effect if you go off of it, and eventually your body will acclimate to that. It's a way of tricking you into thinking that the herbal supplement works. It's not healthy. It's not generally recommended as a long-term strategy. But that's the trick. This is a trick that's hundreds of years old, actually, cutting a patent medicines with some kind of a, of a drug that has a stimulant effect. I mean, Coca-Cola got its name from the fact that they were cutting it with actual cocaine, you know, coca leaves. And putting alcohol in snake oil is as old as snake oil. And today it's caffeine or some stimulant. You know, the one supplement that the FDA was able to pull off the market was a stimulant being cut into a lot of weight loss herbal supplements that was causing heart arrhythmias and causing enough people to drop dead that the FDA was able to ban it. Uh, ephedra is the drug. So they just the supplement industry, the weight loss supplement industry just went to other stimulants that are not banned, uh, but are basically doing the same thing. Steve, uh, what do you make of this recent study about acupuncture? Uh, it, it seems to have brought people with back pain more relief than standard treatments, and it didn't matter whether it was done with an acupuncture needle or with a toothpick or, or maybe with a knitting needle. I don't know. This could say that it doesn't matter what you use, that it's all in the mind, but even so, it says that it works. Well, the study shows that acupuncture does not work, and it's really dishonest of the proponents of acupuncture to try to twist this around and present it to the public as if it shows that acupuncture does work. What this study did was it compared standard therapy plus acupuncture, meaning actually sticking thin needles into the skin in alleged acupuncture points, and it tested two forms of that, either just cookbook style, just putting the needles in, in predetermined locations, or having an expert acupuncturist individualize the treatment to the patient. And they compared that to placebo or fake acupuncture, where toothpicks inside of a tube were pushed against the skin, but they did not penetrate the skin. So that's not acupuncture. That's randomly poking people with toothpicks. But the people didn't know what they were getting. The subjects couldn't tell because the toothpick felt just like a needle going in. So that was standard therapy plus those things compared to standard therapy, which was actually not standardized. It was just whatever the person was already getting or would already get, but that was not standardized in any way. So really, this study was not designed to compare acupuncture to standard therapy. It was designed to compare two different types of acupuncture with fake acupuncture, and it showed absolutely no difference between those three groups. So what that means is it doesn't matter where you stick the needles, and, and this is what other evidence has showed as well. This is not the only study to show this. Generally speaking, the acupuncture research shows it doesn't matter where you stick the needles, and it doesn't even matter if you stick the needles. You don't have to actually stick needles through the skin in order to have a nonspecific subjective sense of improvement in pain syndromes from acupuncture. That's completely consistent with a placebo effect. And it, and it means that acupuncture, that sticking needles into specific places in the skin, doesn't work because it was no better than placebo. This is exactly like a big pharmaceutical company doing a study comparing their drug to a placebo, showing absolutely no difference between the two, and then claiming that both their drug works and the placebo drug works, therefore their drug should get FDA approval and go forward. It's exactly like that. It's a complete and utter deception. Okay. Well, finally, Steve, on your blog, you also discuss uh, what sounds like a very pernicious medical condition, spontaneous human combustion. Right. <laughs> I, I think that would certainly be a, a hot topic around the house if it happened yeah. to you, so to speak. Uh, what do people believe about spontaneous human combustion? Yeah, that's a funny topic. That's one of the lighter things that I might uh, talk about, just again, as a sort of exercise in critical thinking and understanding how science works and how do we know stuff, you know? So does, does spontaneous human combustion actually occur? Do people 
spontaneously burst into flames and burn to ashes. Uh, and it turns out that there's no evidence to support this. This is a notion that has been around for a long time. No one's exactly sure why, but it was popularized by Dickens and other authors who had characters spontaneously combust, and that's how we did away with them. There's been the thinking for a long time that heavy alcohol use may lead to spontaneous human combustion. It survives to this day. Most of these kind of weird beliefs never go away entirely. There's always somebody who latches onto them and, and continues to believe in them. So it has its modern proponents that uh, will point to cases in which uh, people may be found in their apartment or in their home burned almost to ash, but without much damage to the surrounding room, and say, well, that person, you know, that looks this way because they burst into flames themselves. But in all these cases, there are prosaic explanations for them. You know, firefighters don't really have belief in spontaneous human combustion, those that investigate the causes of fires, because they can see, like in some of the famous alleged spontaneous human combustion cases, for example, you know, the people were found with their head literally in their fireplace where the fire hadn't been lit there. I mean, it doesn't take much of imagination to figure out how that person caught on fire. Or they they tend to be people who are uh, not physically uh, able to move around very much. They may be disabled. They're often overweight, and that contributes to their combustibility, if you will. And they are often smokers. Now, why would smoking be a risk factor for combusting, you know, if the smoking wasn't the source of the flame itself? So, you know, you have somebody who's taking medication, who falls asleep, is infirmed and overweight, and, you know, they're smoking while they fall asleep, and they set themselves in their chair on fire, and they burn up, right? And that, But those are the cases that are being presented as, quote-unquote, spontaneous human combustion. And, of course, there's absolutely no known mechanism by which somebody could spontaneously heat to the point of combustion. It sounds to me like it would also be a social blunder. Imagine, right. imagine being out on a date and your your date spontaneously combusts. I mean, it would be a hot date in a way, That's but right. <laughs> I don't think you'd take them out a second time. Steve Novella, thank you so very much for talking to us. Seth, thanks for having me. Stephen Novella is Assistant Professor of Neurology at Yale School of Medicine. Seth, Seth, are you okay? Where are you? Oh, all I see here is a pile of ash. Seth? I'm right here, Molly. I'm under the desk. Phew. (coughs) You okay? Yeah, playing with this potassium nitrate here. It's supposed to cure hives, but it looks like it's also combustible. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say so. Well, I'm glad you're okay, but... Um, can you open a window? It's kind of smoky in here. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. By the way, that's it for our show. Yeah, that may be it for our studio. We'd like to thank the Pillars of Good Health, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the <coughs> SETI Institute, because understanding what SETI is, you have to know what it isn't. And that makes putting on your critical thinking cap so important. Maybe we could put on the fans in here. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, our monthly show on critical thinking on Are We Alone? But... Don't take our word for it. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.